from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. This hour on Studio 360, we are playing some of our very favorite stories from 2018. So... Sit back and grab a cold one. Bush, as crisp and cold as a mountain stream. It has the same great taste it's always had. That music you're hearing in this Bush ad was not composed with beer in mind. It was a pre-recorded track sitting on some digital server of a production music company where the ad agency found that music and paid a fee, downloaded it, and put it into their TV commercial. By the way, we listen to that kind of ready-made stock music all the time. And not just in commercials, in movies, on TV, in video games, on radio shows, podcasts, you name it. And we don't realize it. I didn't, certainly. But now I know because there are some obsessives, of course, who love this kind of background music, anonymous and generic, especially the stock music of the past. And that includes my colleague, Evan Chung, who is here with me in the studio. So what do we? what is the correct name for that kind of music? Well, you can call it stock music or production music. The preferred term is probably library music because the companies that produce this music, they're called music libraries. And uh, library music is especially the term you'll hear used when talking about what a lot of people think is kind of the artistic heyday, which is basically the 60s, 70s, and 80s. As so many things are fashionable from the, that era in so many different genres and media and discipline. Well, that's a period where you had some of the best musicians and composers in Europe virtually anonymously creating just thousands of these pieces of music that kind of run the gamut stylistically. They can be catchy or funky and psychedelic. A lot of it is just plain weird and experimental. Yeah. And it's almost entirely European at this right. point. Not very many American libraries. Was there some special demand for it then? Uh, I mean, obviously there were movies and TV shows in the 50s. Well, in the 60s and 70s is when you see this huge explosion in exploitation filmmaking. You so mean this, just really B-movies? Yeah, B-movies playing at these you know grindhouse theaters right. and drive-ins where they just needed a steady stream of right. cheap, kind of schlocky genre films. And so they needed cheap music for their cheap movies, and that's where library music came in. Like spaghetti westerns? Obviously, that was famously Ennio Morricone, but did, did those kinds of genre uh, have, have library music? Yeah, I can play you some examples of that. Please. Well, there's crime dramas... sci-fi movies, horror films, lots of kung fu movies. That's pretty cool, actually. One really big market was porn. Of course. Um, I think I get why you like this and why people like this. Partly, it's just... Taken out of context of a film, it's it's amusing and interesting, right? Absolutely. And it's funny because it was composed out of context. There was no specific film right. that they made this for. Right. So uh, as a collector, uh, do you just download 
digital versions or or uh, are there actual physical LPs? Well, there were physical LPs produced, but they didn't sell them in stores. The public never saw the records. It was just given to filmmakers as a way to test out the different tracks they might use in a film. Um, so filmmakers would listen to the records, pick out the tracks they liked, call up the library, tell them I want this song and pay a fee, and then the library would send over the master tapes. And they probably pressed very few of those, which probably, I'm guessing, makes them very valuable today. Right, and nobody knew they existed, really, unless you huh. were in the industry. And they're not very well documented. So every day, people are unearthing new ones, and that's part of the thrill of being a collector of library records. So these were like music composition factories where where composers were just... <laughs> day in and day out, composing generic music around a theme uh, here, porn today and 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 gangster movie tomorrow. How, how did that work? Well, there's a new book out that explains part of how that process worked. It's called Unusual Sounds, The Hidden History of Library Music. It's by this guy named David Hollander, who's a very serious, obsessive library music collector. And he's interviewed dozens of library composers from this era from around the world, including a British composer named Keith Mansfield. He's kind of a superstar of, of that era of library music. So I talked to Keith Mansfield, this composer, as well as David Hollander, the author of this book. And first I asked David how composers were assigned to these themes to compose. Great. Let's hear it. Typically, the way it would work is that a library would come up with a brief where they would have a description of given moods that they wanted to create musically, and then they would hand them to a composer and, and give them really free reign to do whatever they wanted within those guidelines. And sometimes the briefs were just very general, very uh, almost like bullet point briefs, uh, just the title and a couple of... Uh, just a sentence describing it. The label head would say, today we're going to do music for industrial and scientific applications. I want something swelling for the building of a building. Or, you know, following a scientific experiment. I want a track that gives me the feeling of uh, traveling in a train. So it really was about creating soundtracks for films that did not yet exist. A very easy album to write was an album called Olympiad 2000, which was the first album that Peter Cox got me to do for KPM Library. And that was his vision of, a, of an Olympics in the future. The empty stadium, huge stadium, but it was empty. Or then the full stadium with, with all the activity and energy going on there. Poetry in motion would be something balletic, if you like. Then the rugged endeavor where it's sweating, that sort of thing, that might be the marathon, it might be anything. But things like that would just be triggers uh, for you to get started. And once you get started, you've got to just go with it. You're under pressure because you can't procrastinate. You've got to every day come up with one or two pieces of music. I mean, I've got to get a composition idea, score it for the orchestra, then next day do another one. Sometimes I was doing three in a day, you know. Nobody's interested in your excuses. You can't go in there 
I didn't feel inspired, so therefore I didn't come up with as much music as I was supposed to. You'd be dead, you know. <laughs> You'd be out of the business immediately. So it had to be there, done that day, finished that night, whatever, and that made your mind up for you. I think it was a, a really compressed time frame. I think that they would walk into the studio and they do a session during the day and then they do a session at night. Normally it would be four titles in a three-hour session. That would be the same thing if it was an orchestral session, big band session. You would have the equivalent of a house band where they were the same guys would be on your sessions. In the studio, as, mu as much as possible... You're giving them a flavour of what you want, but you don't overwrite. Of course, you've got a composition and you've got the, the framework and you've got the basic chord structure. But in a funky thing, no, you want, to, you want to give them as much room for their talent, for their personality to shine in your music. They'd all be in the studio with the strings, everyone there together. You do it all, all together. And it was, of course, it was great completely different world to the one you're going now when you just got yourself and a synthesizer and a computer. <laughs> there were certain rules in library. It isn't the film score, that is, you're not given specific timings where things are going to happen and you need to change the mood or go from quiet to loud and things like that or from slow to fast because there's an action or a fight going on. In live music, you have to start and sustain a mood for however long the recording is. If it's two minutes, then you sustain that mood. If an editor wants it to change after 35 seconds, he cuts into another piece of music to do that. What you've got to do, though, is sustain the atmosphere without it just becoming boring. I think it's important to note that while these composers were toiling away in anonymity, they were not toiling away in obscurity because while they weren't necessarily named as the composers of this music, this music was really ubiquitous and widely used. Oh, the start of two weeks of top tennis in Wimbledon 85. The life I had was fantastic. I, I had so much money, I could go anywhere, no one knew my face. I just loved the fact of being anonymous. They were happy to eschew the fame of commercial music just in order to keep working. And, and they were really able to work in a way that commercial musicians are unable to at this point. Look, I was a commercial arranger for the record companies. I had my own orchestra on CBS Records, but they really wanted you to be one person, the, the person they were selling. They didn't want you to be all these different people. That, that wasn't who I wanted to be. I didn't just want to be one part of who I was. With library, you could write so much different music. It's as diverse as the spectrum of all musics. So if it exists musically, then there is a library analog to it. If you wanted you know, to find a record of South Pacific Islander music. You're going to find a library record that has that. I mean, I could write for a huge orchestra or I could write for just a bass. Whatever I had to do, if I had to write for a hundred-voice choir... 
I'd never done it before, but that's what I would do. It's just one of those skills that you, you, you just had an innate sense of what was required and you could do it. There is certain kinds of music where there's an inordinate amount of that kind of music. One example of that would be underwater music. There seems to be a lot more underwater records than there are underwater films. The only music that I would say is really not present is vocal music. Library music is, is overwhelmingly instrumental, but there are a handful of vocal records. There's one by Alan Parker and Madeline Bell, uh, a record called The Voice of Soul. You got what it There is a song on there called You've Got What It Takes. Just a really sweet soul song that uh, shows up in a number of porno films. Are you having a good time? I sure am. And you still trust me? Of course I do, doctor. I'd meet guys sometimes in the, uh, up in Denmark Street, whatever, and they'd say, oh, I saw that movie you did the weekend. I said, what movie was that? He said, you know, the Scandinavian one. I said, what Scandinavian movie? He said, you know, you know, the one. I said, no idea what they're talking about. What it was, these film producers doing these soft porn films would give credit to the composer. If they used, say, a lot of my music in it, I'd suddenly get the credit for the music. Uh, they would just choose it from the library, almost like to give their presentation, their film, a little bit of extra kudos. That specially commissioned score, they'd put their name there. Music composed Keith Mansfield. It wasn't just soft porn, but mostly it was porn. <laughs> but hey, people use music for whatever they want. I mean, it's in our world, uh, we write our music to be used by editors in whatever. We have no moral right on what they use it for. become quickly aware of the tracks that are eminently usable because they just work. There are many, many other tracks that are impossible to synchronize. You couldn't even really imagine a possible usage for it. That's library music that I'm especially interested in. There's a composer, for instance, named Giampiero Boneschi. He came to library music much later in life. He was an older guy, and he got his hands on a synthesizer. And he started to make these records of astrato, abstract electronic music. He did one record of sort of like lounge music where he does wordless vocals and electronics. When you listen to it, you think to yourself, 
how could anyone ever use this in anything? It's just too out there. There's no point in writing music if nobody's going to use it, because that means we all go broke. Because you don't get paid in live music, you do the music, you get paid if it gets used. You get paid by royalties. If they're earning their keep, it's a good library track, because its editors found it useful. But they're standout tracks that do the job they were supposed to, but then do jobs that nobody ever dreamed of. And I can tell you, one of my favourite pieces of music was what we used to call industrial music. Now, industrial, when we were doing it in the 60s and early 70s, was big music, sweaty music. It was to do with big industry. It was to do with oil tankers and big, big machinery and all that sort of thing. So the music was large scale. One of the guys I always ad ad admired, a guy called Johnny Pearson, he wrote a piece of music called Heavy Action. So this piece of music called Heavy Action did that perfectly, but it got picked up. So Heavy Action has been used in America for over 40 years as the Monday Night Football theme, and it sounds great. But it wasn't written for football, it was written to be an industrial piece of music. Now when I say that's a great piece of live music, that's because it did the job it was supposed to do originally, which was to be the industrial music, but it had something else as well which took it into uncharted territory and is so famous because of it. Themes International has two records that I think are very much of note called Drama Suite Volume 1 and Drama Suite Volume 2. Those two records of Alan Tews are absolutely superlative records. And there's a track called The Big One that everyone in the world at this point would recognize as the theme to the people's court. I'm finding out about library LPs I've never heard of every single day. I just think the idea that there's this massive pile, this mountain of music out there that really no one's really scratched the surface of is interesting to today's music listener. I mean, honestly, it appears to be endless. The whole thing about the live music, it may not have had the glamour of, of being a film composer or of being a pop star or whatever, but that's not what I wanted. I mean, I just wanted the opportunity to be all the different people I could be as a composer. I could be serious, I could be humorous, I could be evil, I could be nice and innocent, I could do angry music, I'd do all sorts of things. So that was very fulfilling as a, as a composer and it kept me interested for my whole musical lifetime. You can read David Hollander's interviews with Keith Mansfield and some of his fellow ubiquitous, unheralded composers in his book, Unusual Sounds, The Hidden History of Library Music. The book also reproduces some of the great library music album covers, which are really all the more lovable given that the records weren't even meant to be sold. Studio 360's Evan Chung produced our story. Coming up. 
The Noid, how a goofy pizza commercial character sent one guy over the edge. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Today, we are bringing you some of our favorite stories that we aired on this program in 2018. And one of them brought us back to 1986, when Will Vinton Studios, an animation company in Portland, Oregon, produced a particularly memorable TV commercial. Those, of course, are the California Raisin, the sunglass-wearing claymation characters, doing an oddly literal version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. It became a huge ad campaign back in that three-TV channel day and an actual cultural phenomenon with record albums and Saturday morning cartoon shows. That same year, Will Vinton Studios unleashed another claymation advertising character, this one for Domino's Pizza. This creature also got famous, but even more through serendipity and misfortune, infamous. Our producer Sam Kim has the story, which begins with the creative director of a now-defunct advertising agency in Michigan that created the character. It was over the top, you know, it was big, it was expressive, it was colorful, it was loud, you know. (laughs) Underneath that suit, he probably had big hair. My name is Ernie Parrish, and I was the uh, executive vice president and creative director on the Domino's Pizza Noid campaign. You know, it's 1980, 84. Crazy stuff's going on. I mean, it was kind of a grand time for advertising. Brooke Shields is doing the Calvin Klein ads. You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. Energizer Bunny. They keep going. And where's the beef? At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. And Domino's Pizza is essentially in a two-horse race then, right? It's Pizza Hut was the the in-store dining place. Let yourself go to Pizza Hut. Let yourself go to Pizza Hut. Domino's Pizza was the delivery place. What we constantly had to overcome was the perception that a pizza that was going to be delivered, it's going to taste like cardboard, the cheese is going to be stuck to the top of the box, it's going to be ice cold, it's going to smell like cigarette smoke because the driver's smoking in the car. So what we really wanted to do was highlight that that product would uh, be delivered hot and fresh, uh, you know, in less than a half an hour. So we had a little off-site meeting. A guy by the name of Tom Masters came up with the idea, you know, maybe we could come up with a bad guy. I was like, wow, a bad guy. Part of the discussion was, you know, what are we going to name this thing? And the guys and gals at Domino's called themselves Dominoids, and it was just kind of a little internal thing. Matt Thornton was a writer, and Matt said, why don't we just call him a noid? It was just short for Dominoid. It's one syllable. I love one-syllable names. That's cool. Let's go with that. It basically became just a personification of all the things that could go wrong. He was a little bit like Wile E. Coyote. At that point in time, I had seen some early clay animation work by Wolverton Productions in Portland, Oregon. They had did some Nike commercials, and visually I just love the way that clay stuff looked. So 
We kind of just gave them our sketches, gave them our thoughts. And they had a guy on staff there uh, by the name of Barry Bruce. He took our little guy and put him in a skin-tight rubber suit with those big ears. And he talks about how these ears can do anything. You can tie them in knots, you can grab them, they can droop. I was going, wow, all of a sudden, this is not a guy. This is annoyed. And it was like, oh my God, that's, that's nuts. It's nuts in a beautiful way. I think it launched on September 22nd, 1986. This is the Noid. He loves to ruin your pizza. He's always trying to ruin this pizza. But guess what? The Domino's pizza gets the better of him. Then the pizza's delivered beautifully. At a Domino's pizza, we avoid the Noid. I mean, you know, it really struck a nerve with a certain segment of the market now. You know, maybe the 52-year-old homeowner didn't like it, but I tell you, their, their 13- or 14-year-old son or daughter uh, certainly got a kick out of it. It wasn't just a popular TV commercial. This thing was more successful than we had imagined. My name is Tim McIntyre. I'm Executive Vice President of Communication, Investor Relations, and Legislative Affairs at Domino's Pizza. 33 years ago, I was... Uh, I was a junior woodchuck. I was uh, an editor in our communication department. We were getting letters. We were getting phone calls. Customers were going into our stores asking if there was Noid stuff available. And it really just became a groundswell. And the people who run our uh, equipment and supply division started working with other vendors to create T-shirts Gumby-like plastic collectible characters. Games, there was a Noid video game. Then he makes all these cameo appearances. You know, he was in Michael Jackson's Moonwalker video. Michael Jackson! Michael Jackson! Essentially, it just kind of caught fire a little bit. Until ultimately a tragic event. There was a, um, a young man named Kenneth Lamar Noid, who, uh, from all accounts, had some mental health issues. He must have heard, we're avoiding the Noid far too many times, and he began to internalize that. Here's some news the Noid won't like. Only our pizza is guaranteed to avoid the Noid. So avoid the noise. Avoid the noise. Avoid the noise. Sorry, noise. The noise just can't be the best. And came to believe that we were somehow targeting him individually for ridicule. And he needed a way to get back at us. And so he went into one of our stores. It was Domino's Pizza on Buford Highway in Chambly, Georgia. One of the employees in the store was Sean Burnsett. I think I was 21. It was in 1989. My job was to open the store, and Kenneth Lamar Noid came to the door. He was tall. I remember he's probably 6'1". I opened the door and um, went behind the counter to take his order, and he immediately pulled out a gun, came around the counter, and he says, um, I want $100,000. He was explaining to me that he felt that Domino's Pizza owed him money because of the Avoid the Noid commercials. He told me I needed to get Tom Monahan on the phone, and Tom Monahan 
I believe was the owner of Domino's Pizza. I picked up the phone and called the only number I knew I could get through to, and it was the Domino's Pizza Safety Hotline. I told the lady, I said, there's a guy here, says that he uh, wants $100,000. So the lady started laughing. I'm pretty sure she thought it was a joke. About a second or two later, Kenneth uh, pulled the trigger on his gun and fired a couple of shots into the ceiling, and the lady's demeanor immediately changed. Um, he said it where the lady on the phone could hear, if any cops show up, I'm going to kill him. Then he hung up the phone. 22-year-old Kenneth Noyd kidnapped two Domino's workers with a 357 handgun. Immediately, all the phones started ringing off the hook. We answered one of the phones, and it was the hostage negotiator trying to negotiate with Kenneth. He wanted $100,000 and a private plane to take us to Mexico. And we did gather the owner of the company at the time, and the heads of operations got together to say, what can we do? The owner of the company had a private plane at the time and was willing to make it available if that would help get the team members out of the store. And As the hostage negotiator was talking, I could tell from my end if it started to upset Kenneth. You know, he would just get angry. And so I'd immediately kind of start trying to calm him down by maybe sort of taking his side, if that makes sense. One of the things that he had me do is make him a pizza. He ordered an extravaganza, I do remember that. And he wouldn't allow me to cut it. I think that he feared that I was going to maybe come at him with a pizza cutter, I'm not certain. You know, it was one of those times in the corporate office that you literally saw people biting their nails. You'd get a phone update, and then they'd hang up, and you'd have to wait for the phone to ring for another update. Noid, who police say was acting irrationally, at one point wanted a book called The Widow's Son. Police brought the book, but wouldn't give it to him unless a hostage was released. Kenneth was going to finally let a police officer in to speak to him. I sort of had some of his trust because, you know, I was trying to be sympathetic to his situation. I made him pizza. For whatever reason, he chose me to go to the front door. He was probably eight feet from me. He could have shot me for sure. I just finally just grabbed the door, opened it up, ran out. During a six-hour standoff with police, hustling Domino's employees literally ran out on the gunman when his back was turned. The gunman gave up just before 5 o'clock, surrendering himself in a snub-nosed 38. I remember people going from nail-biting to hugging. Police say Noid will be charged with two counts kidnapping, two counts aggravated assault, and theft by extortion. Police I don't hold on to anger or any animosity towards him. I did for a very short while, but I did know that he had mental issues, and to me that was a way to kind of justify, at least in part, what he did. But I just don't remember ever harboring a whole lot of anger towards him. I really don't. Then the questions came from national media about whether we were going to uh, get rid of the ad campaign. And we didn't. You know, we did talk about it. Um, but this was such a unique, just extraordinary uh, experience. We didn't think it was going to happen again, uh, which clearly it didn't. One of the things that I think about is is this something that a reasonable person would blame on the brand, would blame on the company? Did we do something that's our fault? And in asking that question six or seven ways about the Noid, we couldn't say yes to any of them. 
There's no way we'd have ever, ever in a million years imagined something like that, nor in a million years could we ever have prevented something like that. You know what I mean? That's how you rest your head on the pillow and and just feel sorry for the situation. And I believe it was in 1995, uh, Kenneth Lamar Noy took his own life. In 1995, Noid, the man, committed suicide. Subsequently, Domino's terminated the Noid, and that's when Domino stopped using the Noid character. You know, there's a lot of information out there. There's, if you look these things up, you'll see that this, this tragedy of this young man is credited with the end of the Domino's Pizza Noid campaign. And the two things happened, but the two were not related. The Noid campaign ended in... I believe in late 91 or early 1992, but Ken took his life four years later or something like that. So it certainly wasn't a part of the reason that the campaign uh, ended up going away. You know, the Noid was a phenomenal ad campaign, but five years later, people know what pizza delivery is. If the idea was to educate, quote-unquote, educate consumers about pizza delivery and what could go wrong and what should go right then the Noid accomplished its purpose. We tried our best to set the record straight, but then it's one of those things where you hear the story, it's sensational, it's bizarre, and myth becomes fact. And uh, just the resurrection of this discussion has moved me a lot, actually, in the last few weeks. I lost my son to mental illness uh, two years ago. At about the same age that Kenneth probably passed away, I, I, uh, it's a, it's a pain that I live with every day that'll never go away. So this situation is very difficult for me to talk about, but I feel very passionate about it. It's just something you cannot predict, something you would never even possibly think about, something that you can't explain, something that doctors can't fix, something that Kenneth's parents couldn't do anything about, something that Kenneth couldn't do anything about. And it's so, you know, do, do, I have, do I have guilt over naming the character the Noid, knowing what I know now? No, I don't have guilt over it at all. I couldn't have prevented anything, you know. But I just feel so much compassion for uh, any uh, of his family members. I don't know them. I'd like to give his mom a hug. I'd like to give his dad a hug. Uh, I, don't want, I don't think it's fair for anybody to think that, that their son's death is, brings a little bit of a smile to someone's face just because it's so odd. Uh, they don't deserve that. It's not right. It's inappropriate and... You know, at this point in time in my life, I, I take this stuff very, very seriously. We have no plans to bring the, the Noid back. Brands and audiences and generations change and evolve. You know, the California Raisins are gone, the Noid is gone. I'm sure there is a an advertising mascot cemetery somewhere where there are there are more mascots there than there are on TV. I liked the Noid campaign. I, I thought it was funny. We used to have the little Noid dolls and everything else. It was a good campaign. I think they ought to bring it back. Studio 360 Sam Kim produced that story. You can see more about the Noid, including some early sketches of the character, at studio360.org. Coming up next, a great singer-songwriter has also just 
dug back into 1980s pop culture. I went to a party with a couple of friends, and somebody played the song once in a lifetime. And I'm like, hmm, this sounds like really African, and and then I loved it. The results of the great Angelique Kidjo's 35-year-long obsession with a certain Talking Heads album. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. The singer-songwriter Angelique Kidjo is one of the global superstars of African music. She grew up in Benin and then moved to Paris as a young woman in the early 1980s, both to escape Benin's tyrannical communist regime and to study music. Since then, she has won three Grammys for songs such as this. But for her newest album, Kijo is doing something different. Completely different. She has recorded a song-by-song cover of the 1980 Talking Heads album, Remain in Light. And as a longtime big fan of both Talking Heads and Anjali Kidjo, um, since she came on the show a few years ago, I could not wait to talk to her about this project. Angelique, welcome back to Studio 360. Thanks for having me back. You must remember the very first time you heard Remain in Light? Hmm. Yeah. Where, when, exactly what was happening? Well, it was not certainly not in Benin because in the 80s, we were not having any music but propaganda music from the morning till the evening. You wake up around the clock and I get sick of it. Um, and when I arrived in Paris, actually, in 1983. And you were like 22, 23, 23. years old. 23. Um, and we went to, I went to a party with a couple of friends. And somebody played the song Once in a Lifetime. And I'm like, hmm, this sounds like really African. And, and then I loved it. And so did you buy the album and, and start listening to I it? I didn't have the money. I was broke. Oh, I was really? student broke. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't buy So the- when did you hear the other 11 songs? I heard them later on, actually, when I moved to America. So I listened to the whole album at that time in the 90s. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. (laughs) Uh, I want to play the opening track of the Talking Heads album, which is Born Under Punches. And listeners should know that you're virtually dancing to it right here at, at uh, the table. Um, it was a new uh, direction for them at the time. And whoa, what, what, is it, what is going on here? When you heard that, for instance, uh, what did you hear? What speaks to you about that song? Oh, man, what I hear that, I hear a completely different song. I hear the drums, I hear the melody, and I hear the message. 
take a look at his hands, it was one of the things that hits me the most. Because it's so photographic about how people come and dig their hands and take everything out of Africa and how corruption have been creating poverty everywhere. And for me, corruption everywhere, shape or form, is a crime against humanity. That's in that song? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm a government man. These hands speaks. They speaks why? Because yeah. you have your hand on the money and no. you squeeze everybody out of it. And once you say that, I get that. And, and in fact, the song becomes less abstruse to me. Now, I want to I play a little bit of later on in that song, the original version followed by your version. <laughs> This is Talking Heads. And this is Angelique Kidjo. Your version of this song, uh, there, you wrote some whole new lyrics. The backup singers are singing different lyrics in one of the indigenous languages of Benin, right, Fawn? Yeah. What I'm saying in that song, that Zoyalo, is fire can make you dizzy as an alcohol. You don't know how to control fire. Don't start a fire. You can't stop. And that's what is going on in the world. People are mad and tired of trying to climb a mountain with no asperity. I mean, how long is this going to stand for a minority of people that siphon money every second away from programs that can help our children? I mean, I'm not even talking about Africa. I'm talking about I can tell. I can tell. I think that we have government, especially this government in place, is raging war on poor people and middle class. And we sit down here and we do nothing. I mean, I come from a dictatorship. And here in America, I am 30 or 40 years later. Facing the same kind of thing. No, not quite, right? Oh, well, you'll see. Well, let's, let's play uh, Once in a Lifetime, the original Talking Heads version, and then, and then we'll hear yours. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house With a beautiful wife And you may ask yourself Well, how did I get here? Letting the days go
yourself, how do I work this? And you may ask yourself, where is that large automobile? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful world. Letting the days go by. And listeners, I just want you to know... You didn't hear the exact record version because Angelique was singing along with herself. <laughs> Sorry. No, I love that. It's a special, <laughs> special version. Um, in your version of Once in a Lifetime, what additions did you do there? Were there new lyrics? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, like what? what, what what's new there <laughs> that we can hear? I brought some African lyrics to it. I wanted to bring a song that is talking about a rhythm called Palongo in my country where we dance together. And... I said, here I come in my name. Miwa elo, wa e miwa, miwa elo, wa e miwa, balongo hum black potondo nundo mi. We are greeting you with the rhythm of balongo. Gae me sena miro, gae me sena miro, gae me sena miro, janairo. I see my time, this time that I was born to spend on this earth, is a given time by the Almighty. When my time comes, I leave. When yours come, you leave. You decide that now is the time in 2017, 2018, you're going you're gonna to do this. Uh, because why? why? What was it about this album that made you decide to do this? I listened to it back not long ago because I wake up a couple of days in a row going, I'm like, this song, is it going to leave me alone one day or is it going to keep on coming? I didn't know the lyrics at that time. Right. And then I'm like, what is that, by the way? And I start talking to friends. They say, but this is Talking Head album. I'm like, yeah, but I listened to it, but what is it about? So I listened back to it, and then it hits me. By listening to it back, with all the things that I've, I've been traveling around the world, I start listening to the words, and I'm like, ooh, this is profound. And people say, what, do you understand those lyrics? They are absurd. I said, they're not. Really? Because they aren't. They aren't. They aren't easy to understand. They're a little. Oh, they're, no. they're extremely poetic and almost uh, kind of nonsensical. No, no? It's, it has. It made sense to me. Yeah, yeah. It made sense. Everything makes sense to me. Now, did you? By that time, you surely knew that that the mm-hmm. producer Brian Eno and David mm-hmm. Byrne had been influenced by West African music. Yeah, I knew. I knew that. I mean, I made research, and I, I knew. There are people back in the 80s still, no doubt, even more perhaps, now that the the phrase cultural appropriation exists, who say, oh, David Byrne, Brian, you know how you stole this music from West Africa. I take it you don't buy that as a problem? <laughs> I don't buy that because when the album was released, they made clear in the press release where the inspiration comes from. They acknowledge it. Right. It's not like they were quiet about it. It wasn't like Elvis and Chuck Elvis, Berry. <laughs> Elvis, Elvis steal the songs, put his name on it, right. and call himself a rock and roll star. I mean, that is not even cultural appropriation. Is theft. Swiping, yeah. It's swiping, it's, yeah. it's stealing from people. So this was respectful and, and explicit. As long, and, yeah. as long as you acknowledge and recognize where that inspiration comes from, I don't call it uh, cultural appropriation. I call it uh, cultural expansion. So the, the West African influence on the record, is that what attracted you to, to this album and, and inspired the project to remake it? For me, it doesn't. It was not the most important thing for me. Uh-huh. It was the, the era when the album was released that was important, because what I feel sometimes—I mean, I feel the urge of moving, but also I feel a lot of anxiety in it, and and it's just like well, that's of, talking heads. It puts you not comfortably sitting, and it just like ew. It makes you think. 
Right. It makes you question, why am I feeling this feeling? Right. And then I made researches and I realized that the, that album particularly had been written in the era of Reagan when Reagan was raging a war against yeah. against uh, drug drug right. war and also against social yeah. safety net for every American mental uh, disease center disappear. It's interesting though that you see this album and Talking Heads for that matter as 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 making political music because certainly at the time they weren't that wasn't regarded as what they were doing. I mean, here's the Clash making political music, not Talking Heads, right? You yeah, know, but yeah, but that's what I that's what I felt. I hear you. That's what I felt. And and listening back today, it becomes a little bit more even relevant mm-hmm. because this anxiety everybody's living in is not only the adults that are living in, the children also are feeling it. And it has been something that was really disturbing to me as a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador, what I see outside of America, the stress the kids go through, the pain kids go through because of lack of real leadership and, 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 and providing for the children. I start feeling the same here, and I'm like, what is going on? Let's take a step back and see what is this all about? How can music play a role for people to find the strength and also the joy to live? Because if we all are in gloom and misery, we're never going to move forward. The, The thing that matters to me was to take that iconic album to this present time where we need light. What a pleasure. And what a pleasure this uh, album is. I'm, I'm really glad you did such a strange and uh, one-of-a-kind thing. I love it. Me too. Thank you so much. Great seeing Good you again. Good to be here again. I spoke with Angelique right before her Remain in Light album was released in June. And that's it for this episode of Studio 360. The show is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. He was a little bit like Wiley Coyote, just a personification of all the things that could go wrong. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, a hip-hop pirate radio station in New York City that had its ups... It got big. You know, we, we got a lot of love and... And downs. Eventually, when you get too big and you do something illegal... You know, they, they come knocking on your door. The story of WBAD from the outlaws who created it. Next time on Studio 360.